Chapter One of Merton of the Movies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Merton of the Movies by Harry Leon Wilson. Chapter One Dirty Work at the Border. At the very beginning of the tale there comes a moment of puzzled hesitation. One way of approach is set beside another for choice, and a third contrived for better choice. Still the puzzle persists, all because the one precisely right way might seem, shall we say, intense, high-keyed, clamorous? Yet if one way is the only right way, why pause? Courage! Slightly dazed, though certain, let us be on into the shrill thick of it. So then, out there in the great open spaces where men are men, a clash of primitive hearts and the coming of young love into its own. Well had it been for Estelle St. Clair if she had not wandered from the Fordyce ranch. A moment's delay in the arrival of Buck Benson, a second of fear in that brave heart, and hers would have been a fate worse than death. Had she not been warned of Snake Lavasquez the outlaw, his base threat to win her by fair means or foul? Had not Buck Benson himself, that strong, silent man of the open, begged her to beware of the half-breed? Perhaps she had resented the hint of mastery in Benson's cool, quiet tones, as he said, "'Miss St. Clair, ma'am, I beg you not to endanger your welfare by permitting the advances of this viper. He bodes no good to such as you.' Perhaps, who knows, Estelle St. Clair had even thought to trifle with the feelings of Snake Lavasquez than to scorn him for his presumption. Although the beautiful New York society girl had remained unsullied in the midst of a city's profligacy, she still liked to play with fire, as she laughingly said, and at the quiet words of Benson, two-gun Benson, his comrades of the border called him, she had drawn herself to her full height, facing him in all her blonde young beauty, and pouted adorably as she replied, "'Thank you, but I can look out for myself.' Yet she had wandered on her pony farther than she meant to, and was not without trepidation at the sudden appearance of the picturesque half-breed, his teeth flashing in an evil smile, as he swept off his broad sombrero to her. Above her suddenly beating heart she sought to chat gaily, while the quick eyes of the outlaw took in the details of the smart riding costume that revealed every line of her lithe young figure. But suddenly she chilled under his hot glance that spoke all too plainly. "'I must return to my friends,' she faltered, they will be anxious. But the fellow laughed with a sinister leer. No, ha, <laughs> ha, ah, no, the lovely senorita will come with me, he replied. 
but there was the temper of steel in his words, for Snake Lavasquez on the border, where human life was lightly held, was known as the slimy viper. Of all the evil men in that inferno, Snake was the foulest. Steeped in vice, he feared neither God nor man, and respected no woman. And now, Estelle St. Clair, drawing-room pet, pampered darling of New York society, which she ruled with an iron hand from her father's Fifth Avenue mansion, regretted bitterly that she had not given heed to honest Buck Benson. Her prayers, threats, entreaties were in vain. Despite her struggles, the blows her small fists rained upon the scoundrel's taunting face, she was borne across the border, on over the mesa, toward the lair of the outlaw. "'Have you no mercy?' she cried again and again. "'Can you not see that I loathe and despise you, foul fiend that you are? Ah, God in heaven, is there no help at hand?' The outlaw remained deaf to these words that should have melted a heart of stone. At last, over the burning plain, was seen the ruined hovel to which the scoundrel was dragging his fair burden. It was but the work of a moment to dismount and bear her half-fainting form within the den. There he faced her, repellent with evil intentions. "'Ha, senorita, you are a beautiful wildcat, yes?' but Snake Lovasquez will tame you. Ha-ha! laughed he carelessly. With a swift movement the beautiful girl sought to withdraw the small silver-mounted revolver without which she never left the ranch. But Snake Lovasquez, with a muttered oath, was too quick for her. He seized the toy and contemptuously hurled it across his vile den. "'Have a care, my proud beauty!' he snarled and the next moment she was writhing in his grasp. Little availed her puny strength. Helpless as an infant was the fair New York society girl, as Snake Lavasquez, foulest of the viper breed, began to force his attention upon her. The creature's hot kisses seared her defenseless cheek. "'Listen,' he hissed, "'you are mine, mine at last.' Here you shall remain a prisoner until you have consented to be my wife. All seemed, indeed, lost. Am I too late, Miss St. Clair? Snake Lavasquez started at the quiet, grim voice. Sapristi! he snarled. You! Me, replied Buck Benson, for it was indeed no other. Thank God at last! murmured Estelle St. Clair, freeing herself from the foul arms that had enfolded her slim young beauty, and staggering back from him who would so basely have forced her into a distasteful marriage. In an instant she had recovered the St. Clair poise, had become every inch the New York society leader, as she replied, "'Not too late, Mr. Benson. Just in time, rather.' Ha! <laughs> this gentleman has become annoying. You are just in time to mete out the punishment he so justly deserves, for which I shall pray that heaven reward you. She pointed an accusing finger at the craven wretch who had shrunk from her and now cowered at the far side of the wretched den.
At that moment she was strangely thrilled. What was his power, this strong, silent man of the open, with his deep reverence for pure American womanhood? True, her culture demanded a gentleman, but her heart demanded a man. Her eyes softened and fell before his cool, keen gaze, and a blush mantled her fair cheek. Could he but have known it, she stood then in meek surrender before this soft-voiced master. A tremor swept the honest, rugged face of Buck Benson as heart thus called to heart. But his keen eyes flitted to Snake Lavasquez. "'Now curse you, viper that you are! You shall fight me by heaven, in American fashion, man to man, for, foul though you be, I hesitate to put a bullet through your craven heart.' The beautiful girl shivered with new apprehension. The eyes of Snake Lavasquez glittered with new hope. He faced his steely-eyed opponent for an instant only— then, with a snarl like that of an angry beast, sprang upon him. Benson met the cowardly attack with the flash of a powerful fist, and the outlaw fell to the floor with a hoarse cry of rage and pain. But he was quickly upon his feet again, muttering curses, and again he attacked his grim-faced antagonist. Quick blows rained upon his defenseless face, for the strong, silent man was now fairly aroused. He fought like a demon, perhaps divining that here strong men battled for a good woman's love. The outlaw was proving to be no match for his opponent. Arising from the ground where a mighty blow had sent him, he made a lightning-like effort to recover the knife which Benson had taken from him. "'Have a care!' cried the girl in quick alarm. That fiend in human form would murder you. But Buck Benson's cool eye had seen the treachery in ample time. With a muttered, Curse you, fiend that you are, he seized the form of the outlaw in a powerful grasp, raised him high aloft as if he had been but a child, and was about to dash him to the ground, when a new voice from the doorway froze him to immobility. Statue-like he stood there, holding aloft the now still form of Snake Lavasquez. The voice from the doorway betrayed deep amazement and the profoundest irritation. "'Merton Gill, what in the sacred name of time are you meaning to do with that dummy? For the good land's sake, have you gone plumb crazy or what? Put that thing down!' The newcomer was a portly man of middle age, dressed in ill-fitting black. His gray hair grew low upon his brow, and he wore a parted beard. The conqueror of Snake Lavasquez was still frozen, though he had instantly ceased to be Buck Benson, the strong, silent, two-gun man of the open spaces. The irritated voice came again. "'Put that dummy down, you idiot! What do you think you're doing, anyway? And say—' "'What you got that other one in here for "'when it ought to be out in front of the store "'showing that new line of gingham house frocks? "'Put that down and handle it careful. "'Maybe you think I got them things down from Chicago "'just for you to play horse with. "'Not so. Not so at all. "'They're to help show off goods, "'and that's what I want them doing right now. "'And for time's sake, what's that revolver lying on the floor for? 
Is it loaded? Say, are you really out of your senses or ain't you? What's got into you lately? Will you tell me that? Sky-hootin' around in here, leaving the front of the store unprotected for an hour or two, like your time was your own. And don't tell me you only been foolin' in here for three minutes, either, because when I come back from lunch just now, there was Miss Leffingwell up at the notions counter, want some hooks and eyes, and she tells me she's waited there a good thirty minutes if she's waited one. Nice goin's on, I must say, for a boy drawn down the money you be. Now you get busy! Take that one with the gingham frock out and stand her in front where she belongs, and then put one of them new raincoats on the other and stand em out where he belongs, and then look after a few customers. I declare sometimes I get clean out of patience with you. Now, for gosh sake, stir your stumps. Oh, all right. Yes, sir, replied Merton Gill, though but half respectfully. The, oh, all right, had been tainted with a trace of sullenness. He was tired of this continual nagging and fussing over small matters. Some day he would tell the old grouch so. And now, gone the vivid tale of the great out-of-doors, the wide plains of the West, the clash of primitive-hearted men for a good woman's love. Gone, perhaps, the greatest heart-picture of a generation— the picture at which you laugh with a lump in your throat and smile with a tear in your eye, the story of plausible punches, a big vital theme masterfully handled, thrills, action, beauty, excitement, carried to a sensational finish by the genius of that sterling star of the shadowed world, Clifford Armitage once known as Merton Gill in the little hamlet of Simsbury, Illinois, where for a time, ere yet he was called to screen triumphs, he served as a humble clerk in the so-called emporium of Amos G. Gashweiler, everything for the home, our prices always right. Merton Gill, so for a little time he must still be known, moodily seized the late Estelle St. Clair under his arm, and withdrew from the dingy back storeroom. Down between the counters of the emporium he went with his fair burden, and left her outside its portals, staring from her very definitely lashed eyes across the slumbering street at the Simsbury post-office. She was tastefully arrayed in one of those new checked gingham house-frocks, so heatedly mentioned a moment since by her lawful owner, and across her chest Merton Gill now imposed, with no tenderness of manner, the appealing legend, our latest for milady, only six dollars and ninety-eight cents. He returned for Snake Levasquez. That outlaw's face, even out of the picture, was evil. He had been picked for the part because of his face. Plump, pinkly-tinted cheeks, lustrous curling hair of somewhat repellent composition, eyes with a hard glitter, each lash distinct in blue-black lines, and a small tip-curled black moustache that lent the whole an offensive smirk. Garbed now in a raincoat, he too was posed before the emporium front, labeled, Rainproof, or you get back your money. So frankly evil was his mien that Merton Gill, pausing to regard him, suffered a brief relapse into artistry. 
"'You fiend!' he muttered, and contemptuously smote the cynical face with an open hand. Snake Lavasquez remained indifferent to the affront. Smirking insufferably across the slumbering street at the wooden Indian proffering cigars before the establishment of Selby Brothers, confectionery and tobaccos. Within the emporium the proprietor now purveyed hooks and eyes to an impatient Mrs. Leffingwell. Merton Gill, behind the opposite counter, waited upon a little girl sent for two and a quarter yards of stuff to match the sample crumpled in her damp hand. Over the suave amenities of this merchandising, Amos Gashweiler glared suspiciously across the store at his employee. Their relations were still strained. Merton also glared at Amos, but discreetly, at moments when the other's back was turned, or when he was blandly wishing to know of Mrs. Leffingwell if there would be something else to-day. Other customers entered. Trade was on. Both Merton and Amos wore airs of cheerful briskness that deceived the public. No one could have thought that Amos was fearing his undoubtedly crazed clerk might become uncontrollable at any moment, or that the clerk was mentally parting from Amos forever in a scene of tense dramatic value in which his few dignified but scathing words would burn themselves unforgettably into the old man's brain. Merton, to himself, had often told Amos these things. Some day he'd say them right out, leaving his victim not only in the utmost confusion, but in black despair of ever finding another clerk one half as efficient as Merton Gill. The afternoon wore to closing time in a flurry of trade, during which, as Merton continued to behave sanely, the apprehension of his employer in a measure subsided. The last customer had departed from the emporium. The dummies were brought inside. The dust curtains were hung along the shelves of dry goods. There remained for Merton only the task of delivering a few groceries. He gathered these and took them out to the wagon in front. Then he changed from his store coat to his street coat and donned a rakish plush hat. Amos was also changing from his store coat to his street coat and donning his frayed straw hat. "'See if you can't keep from acting crazy while you make them deliveries,' said Amos, not uncordially, as he lighted a choice cigar from the box which he kept hidden under a counter. Merton wished to reply, "'See here, Mr. Gashweiler, I've stood this abuse long enough. The time has come to say a few words to you.' But aloud he merely responded, "'Yes, sir.' the circumstance that he also had a cigar from the same box, hidden not so well as Amos thought, may have subdued his resentment. He would light the cigar after the first turn in the road had carried him beyond the eagle eye of its owner. The delivery wagon outside was drawn by an elderly horse devoid of ambition or ideals. His head was sunk in dejection. He was gray at the temples, and slouched in the shafts in a loafing attitude, one forefoot negligently crossed in front of the other. He aroused himself reluctantly and with apparent difficulty when Merton Gill seized the reins and called in commanding tones, "'Get on there, you old skate!' 
the equipage moved off under the gaze of Amos, who was locking the doors of his establishment. Turning the first corner into a dusty side street, Merton dropped the reins and lighted the filched cigar. Other Gashweiler property was sacred to him. From all the Emporium's choice stock he would have abstracted not so much as a pin, but the Gashweiler cigars, said to be the world's best ten-cent smoke, with the picture of a dissipated clubman in evening dress on the box cover, were different, in that they were pointedly hidden from Merton. He cared little for cigars, but this was a challenge. The old boy couldn't get away with anything like that. And if he didn't want his cigars touched, let him leave the box out in the open like a man. Merton drew upon the lighted trophy, moistened and pasted back the wrapper that had broken when the end was bitten off, and took from the bottom of the delivery wagon the remains of a buggy-whip that had been worn to half its length. With this he now tickled the bony ridges of the horse. Blows meant nothing to Dexter, but he could still be tickled into brief spurts of activity. He trotted with swaying head, sending up an effective dust-screen between the wagon and a still possibly observing Gashweiler. His deliveries made, Merton again tickled the horse to a frantic pace which continued until they neared the alley on which fronted the Gashweiler barn. There the speed was moderated to a mild amble, for Gashweiler believed his horse should be driven with tenderness, and his equally watchful wife believed it would run away if given a chance. Merton drove into the barnyard, unhitched the horse, watered it at the half of a barrel before the iron pump, and led it into the barn, where he removed the harness. The old horse sighed noisily and shook himself with relief as the bridle was removed and a halter slipped over his venerable brow. Ascertaining that the barnyard was vacant, Merton immediately became attentive to his charge. Throughout the late drive his attitude had been one of mild but contemptuous abuse. More than once he had uttered the words, "'Old skate!' in tones of earnest conviction, and with the worn end of the whip he had cruelly tickled the still absurdly sensitive sides. Had beating availed, he would with no compunction have beaten the drooping wreck. But now, all at once, he was curiously tender. He patted the shoulder softly, put both arms around the bony neck, and pressed his face against the face of Dexter. A moment he stood thus, then spoke in a tear-choked voice. "'Good-bye, old pal. The best, the truest pal a man ever had. You and me has seen some tough times, old pard. But you've allus brought me through without a scratch. Allus brought me through.' There was a sob in the speaker's voice, but he manfully recovered a clear tone of pathos. "'And now, old pal, they're a-taking you from me. Yes, we got a part, you and me. I'm never going to set eyes on ye again. But we got to be brave, old pal. We got to keep a stiff upper lip. No crying now. No busting down. The speaker unclasped his arms and stood with head bowed, his face working curiously, striving to hold back the sobs. For Merton Gill was once more Clifford Armitage, 
popular idol of the screen, in his great role of Buck Benson bidding the accustomed farewell to his four-footed pal that had brought him safely through countless dangers. How are we to know that in another couple hundred of feet of the reel Buck will escape the officers of the law who have him for that hold-up of the Wallahoola stage, of which he was innocent, leap from a second-story window of the sheriff's office onto the back of his old pal, and be carried safely over the border where the hell-hounds can't touch him until his innocence is proved by Estelle St. Clair, the New York Society girl, whose culture demanded a gentleman, but whose heart demanded a man. How are we to know this? We only know that Buck Benson always has to kiss his horse good-bye at this spot in the drama. Merton Gill is impressively Buck Benson. His sobs are choking him, and though Gashweiler's delivery horse is not a pinto, and could hardly get over the border ahead of a sheriff's posse, the scene is affecting. "'Good-bye again, old pal, and God bless ye,' sobs Merton. End of chapter 1